0: Well, here we go. i got to tell you, I've really been looking forward to this series over the last few weeks. So grab your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth. If you need to use your table of contents, don't be embarrassed. It's in the Old Testament. It's about the eighth book from the beginning. little bitty book, four chapters buried back in the Old Testament and I know what you're saying, I said this earlier, you're thinking, Pastor Mike, I bet we're the only church in America doing Ruth during Advent to celebrate Christmas. I doubt that's true, it might be, but I'm convinced that by the time we get finished with this book, you're going to go, man, uh, there's one God and one ultimate story in this Bible, and his, the theme is King Jesus. And you're going to see Jesus so pointed to and so, I think, honored through this Old Testament book of Ruth. So Ruth chapter one. Go ahead and turn there. And I want to I want to set up the book just a little bit and tell you why we're going to be there and how it applies to us uh, this morning. Uh, here's the reality, whether you know it this morning or not, but everyone in this room is hoping for something. As you sit here right now, there's something in your heart or something in your mind that you're looking ahead to and you're placing. Hope, you have this expectation or hope in something in the future. Many of you going into the Christmas season, maybe you're hoping it will snow. Maybe you're hoping for a cool, cold Christmas season. My wife has been on every weather app out there trying to find one that might just hint that it's going to snow at Christmas. She really wants it to snow at Christmas. Maybe you're hoping for your family to come together at Christmas and family to be in your house. Maybe you're hoping family would leave your house at Christmas. I don't know what it is. Some of you are hoping right now, and you're looking forward to that special Christmas gift. I and mean, that's okay. We're all building our Amazon wish list. I've got mine. You can go check mine out. You know, we we're all kind of hoping. And I did a little research. I I did some research to figure out what is it. What's the number one selling gift? This year at Christmas, you know we do this almost every year, but what's the number one selling gift this year at Christmas? And I was shocked to find out that thousands and thousands of kids are putting their hope in this toy. It's called a Fingerling Interactive Baby Monkey. Yep, number one selling toy. It's about this big and it's plastic and it wraps around your finger and it's a monkey and you just kind of hold it there like that. It's the number one selling toy in America. Wow. Another toy, and my my girls have mentioned this one, it's called the Hatchimals. Anybody know what a Hatchimal is? Parents, yeah, I see that. Hatchimals work this way. My understanding, it's an egg, and it has a little heart on it, and if you rub that heart long enough, pop, out comes the stuffed animal. Hatchimals. And parents, you can collect all 70 of them. (laughs) Not making it up. Listen, if I'm going to rub an egg and something comes out, I'm probably going to scramble it, you know, for breakfast. <laughs> Since we're on this theme, very quick, they, there's a bonus hatchable that if you hatch it, surprise twins come out and two stuffed animals comes out of the egg. And you can have that, parents, for the low, low price of 70 bucks. How about that? Now, In all seriousness, some of you are hoping, coming out of 2017, that 2018 is a whole lot better year than 2017. Some of you, if you were real honest, you're sitting here and you're hoping that, boy, I hope this particular relationship in my life that's a mess gets healed and turns out a lot better in 2018. Maybe some of you are hoping that your health turns and it's much, much better in 2018. 2018 that it has been in 2017, maybe you're hoping for that son and daughter to turn the corner and either come to know Christ or return home, whatever the case may be. The point is this, this is a season that you're going to hear the phrase over and over hope. It's a season characterized by hope. We even have that word appear on our stage as we walk through this Advent series. One of the things we're going to try to do as the children of God, as the people of God, is be reminded This season has plenty of distractions. This season has many things that we can place our hope in. But let's be reminded that Scripture alone holds out the eternal hope for our hearts that we're longing for. Remember that. The Word of God holds out the hope in a person Jesus Christ, where we find our ultimate hope. And by the way, you carry that message this Christmas season where you live, work, and play. Our lives ought to look decidedly and distinctly different than the world around us because of the hope that's within us, Jesus Christ. Right? Now, we can say that and sometimes what comes out of our mouth and how we live our daily lives is decidedly different. So what the Bible does, and I love scripture for this, is the Bible will take some of these concepts like hope and the Bible will wrap them down in a story like the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth essentially is this. The book of Ruth, four chapters, can be summarized like this. It's one of the clearest pictures in your Bible of hope being found in a desperately hopeless situation. The book of Ruth, just let me give you a little background. It's an absolute jewel in your Bible buried back in the pages of the Old Testament. The story of Ruth takes place during a period in the history of Israel known as the period of the Judges. It's following the time of Joshua and the conquest and the time of great victory and the time of great blessing and favor. And it enters the time of the judges, which was a time, if I just be real honest, a time of open rebellion and sin. It was a dark time in the history of Israel. And this little jewel of the book of Ruth is planted here in that season as a picture of hope and light and grace. The main character, and I really want you to get this, the main character in the book of Ruth is a Gentile girl named Ruth. Now you're not going to understand why we're in the book of Ruth if you don't follow with me for the next 60 seconds or a minute. So I I want you to hear this very clearly. Ruth, the main character in this story, is not a Jew. She's not from the nation of Israel. She's a Gentile. And even more than that, she's from the land of Moab. She's a Moabite. And in that day, I want you to feel the significance that God in His sovereignty and His grace would wrap a story of His scripture, not around a Jewish girl, but around a Moabite Gentile girl. Because here's who the Moabite people were. You've got to get this. The Moabite nation as a whole was a cursed nation. God had pronounced a curse on the entire nation of Moab. They were cursed from their beginnings. Genesis 19, Moab, the man from which all the Moabites come, was the son of Lot through his incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. Moab. Ammon was the other son. You know that in Genesis 19, after they came out of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's Moab. They were a cursed people. They were cursed also because of their treatment of Israel. When Israel was coming through the promised land or on their way to the promised land, they tried to travel through the land of Moab, which geographically is on the other side of the Dead Sea. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. They tried to go through Moab said, you're not coming through here. They wouldn't let them. They were cursed people because of their wicked, idolatrous practices. They worshipped Chemosh, a pagan god who was just the ultimate picture of evil and wickedness. The Moabites were wicked people. Here's the point. The Moabites were doomed for destruction. They were a people born under the curse of God because of their sin. Does that sound familiar to you? It should, or you're not going to make any sense of the book of Ruth and why it applies to you. To be a Moabite was to be born under a curse outside of the family of God, doomed for destruction, living in a hopeless state. And by the way, let me tell you who you are in the story and who I am in the story. We're Ruth. We're the Moabites. We are. Because of our sin and because of our rebellion... Because of, our, because of our resistance against God, because we're born under the curse of sin, because we willingly choose sin. We're just like the Moabites outside of the family of God. We're under the curse of sin, and we deserve complete destruction. Merry Christmas, right? Hope means nothing to you practically and the hope that is found in the Messiah who come to take away the sins of the world means nothing to you unless you realize apart from Jesus Christ we are all cursed and hopeless. Nothing. Nothing. So, it is possible for us to go through the entire Christmas season and to go through all the perfunctory exercises of, of Christmas and never be dazzled and broken in our heart and reminded about the grace we've received by Jesus Christ because we have forgotten how hopeless we are apart from King Jesus. See that? Ruth is a story of a hopeless Moabite Gentile girl outside of the family of God. How is there hope for someone who is doomed to destruction? That's what the book of Ruth ultimately portrays to us this morning. So I want to walk through it with you. We're going to try to cover just one chapter this week and then we'll walk through the other chapters in subsequent weeks. So you can pick up with me. We're going to start in verse 1, Ruth chapter 1. Here we go. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed. We mentioned that before. That's the time period of the book of Ruth. That there was a famine in the land of Israel. The rebellion of the people and the wickedness of the people is not isolated from the famine. They're connected. So it's a dark time in Israel. And a certain man from Bethlehem. Remember that. In Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So this Jewish family is going to leave Israel. They're going to leave Judah, and they're going to go to the land of Moab, because it, back home in Israel, there's a famine, there's no food. This man has to take his family somewhere to take care of them, so he goes around the dead Sea and he, he ends up in the land of Moab, Verse two. Listen what happened. The name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech's the dad. His name means God is my king. His wife was a woman named Naomi. They have two sons. Now listen to these two boys. One is named Malon and the other is Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judea. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Elimelech and Naomi have two boys. The season and the time in Israel is so dark, here's what they named their sons. The first son, Malon, means literally puny. (laughs) They named him Pee-wee. Puny little Malon. In other words, names meant something back in those days, much more than they mean today. And it's the idea, it, it is a rough season in the nation of Israel. The second son was named Chilion, which means pining. They had puny and pining. I don't recommend those names. Pining means longing. And the point was, we're longing. We want to be back in the land of Israel. There was a longing for not just the land of Israel, but back in the favor of God. It had been a hard season in Israel. So Elimelech and Naomi, they take these two boys, puny and pining, and they go to Moab. And then things only get worse. Verse 3, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. That's not a good situation, by the way. The father passes away. They're in a foreign land. They're in the land of Moab. All they have is their two sons. And all they have is puny and pining. It's not a good situation. Verse 4, they, the boys, took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, that's not Oprah Winfrey, it's Orpah. Orpah, her name is very significant and I'm just going to tell you what this means now and we'll come back later. The name of the one wife was Orpah, which literally means the neck. It literally means the back of the neck or stubbornness, if you will. You'll see how that comes up in just a few minutes. The name of the other was Ruth, which means friend, friend. And they lived in the land about ten years. Things get worse. Verse five. Then both Malon, Puny and Chilion Piney died, and the women or the woman was bereft. This is Naomi, the mom, of her two children and her husband. So by the time you get to the end of verse 5, here's the situation. You have a Jewish family. Uh, You have a Jewish mom, Naomi. Her husband, Elimelech, has died. Her two sons have died. And she's left with her two daughter-in-laws, the two Moabite women. I can't convey enough in this culture 2,800 years ago to be a widow was a desperate situation. To be a widow in a foreign land was a very difficult situation. To be a a, a widow with no sons for means of employment or gainful sustenance for their family in that day was a very difficult situation to be in. By the time you get to the end of verse 5 of Ruth, you're to look at this and go, this is not a good situation. That's the point. So then Naomi determines that things need to change and Naomi... Trying to lead her family or lead her two daughter-in-laws. Verse 6. I want you to follow very closely here what Naomi does. She says she arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard that in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. Translation. Back in Israel things have started to change. Back in Judah things have started to change. She believes now is the time to go back to the land of Judah. Back to Bethlehem. So verse 7, she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law, now watch this, with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So you got to get this. Naomi says, I'm going back to Israel. I'm going back to the land of Judah. I'm going back to my home. I'm going back to my people. I'm going back to my God. These two Moabite girls, at first, they say, "Okay, Ruth or okay Naomi, we're all in, we're all in with you. Let's go. I mean, we're going to go back and travel with you." And you would think at this point, Naomi, being a mother-in-law, says, "Yes, girls, I want you to return to Israel, Judah, with me. You girls, come back with me." But watch very carefully how Naomi responds. Verse eight. Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, "Daughters-in-law, go." Return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with the dead and with me. In other words, you've been very kind to me. You've been kind to my husband. You've been kind to my sons. Now go back home to Moab. May the Lord grant that you may find rest there, each in the house of her husband there. She kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. Here's what Naomi in effect says. Don't follow me. It's too hard for you. Naomi gets it that if these two Moabite, Gentile, widowed women follow her back to Judah, it's probably not going to go real well with them. Remember, the Moabites are the enemies of Israel. The the, the odds, if you will, of these two girls finding a husband in the land of Judah are very, very slim. In other words, listen, she keeps going, let me just... Stay with us. She says, verse 8, Naomi says to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return to your mother's house. Verse 12, she says it again. Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, I should even find a husband tonight and bear sons. Would you therefore wait until they're grown? In other words, I can't provide for you sons that will eventually be your husbands. You're not going to find husbands in the land of Judah. If you follow me, it's going to cost you. I can't promise you anything. He said, no, my daughters, it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Now, I want you to listen to this because this is very significant what Naomi is saying here. Listen. Naomi is saying, girls, if you follow me back to the land of promise or back to the land of Judah, I can't promise you anything in Israel. I can't promise you a husband. I can't promise you a a way of life that's going to be good. I can't promise you even a home. In other words, she's saying, listen, if you follow me back to Judah, the only thing I can promise you is me. And she's in effect saying, if you're following me for all the goodies... And you're following me for all the stuff you think you're going to get when you get there. Let me be very clear. You're following me for me. Because that's the only thing I can promise you. Yes, I'll love you. And yes, I'll continue to do everything I can to take care of you. But you may not count on anything else. You may get nothing else. It's going to cost you a great deal, girls, if you follow me back to the land of Judah. Why is this in your Bible? Because later on, the Son of God, Jesus himself, says to you and I as Gentiles, if you're going to follow me, you don't follow me for all the stuff that comes with it. You're following me because of me. <laughs> In fact, here's what Jesus said, alluding in the same sense, the same idea that you hear what Naomi's saying to Ruth. Jesus said this, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to follow me or come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, Jesus says to us who choose to follow him and want to follow him, listen, if you're going to follow me, you need to count the cost. There may be nothing you get with it in this life. I can't promise you houses. I can't promise you land. I can't promise you all the goodies. If you're following, it's because you desire me and I am enough for you. And that's exactly what Naomi was saying to Ruth. And in the same way, Jesus said to a young scribe who came to him in Matthew chapter 8, and he said, Hey, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Really? In other words, if you follow Jesus in the New Testament, you find Jesus saying to a lot of people, no, you go back and return a lot more than Jesus having this altar call and saying, everybody come, it's easy, it's fun, get all the stuff that go with it, your best life now. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8. He says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you follow me, there's no guarantee of comfort in this life. In other words, I want us to see as we hold out a shared culture here in our church and we yearn to make Jesus Christ known, let's make sure that we are making known King Jesus and not all the goodies that we say go along with it. Because Jesus is very clear. If you follow me and you turn from Moab and you yield, you are laying down your life. And it may cost you everything. Just like what Naomi says to Ruth and to Orpah. Now, how did Ruth and Orpah respond? Well, let's follow along. It's very, very interesting. Verse 14. You're going to see two entirely different responses from these two Gentile girls. Up to this point, remember, they were both all in. If you go back a few verses, remember, Naomi said, okay, I'm going back. I want you girls to go with me. They're all in. And after Naomi has said what she's just said, that it may cost you, I can't promise you anything. I'm not even sure I'm going to have a place to live. If you're following, it's because you love me, because I may be all that you get. Orpah changes her tune. Verse 14. And they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. What does that mean? This is a kiss of, thank you very much for everything, but I'm going a different direction. That's what that means. In In other words, Orpah was all in up to this point, but now when she hears the cost that might be involved in following Jesus, if you will, In following Naomi back to the land of promise, Orpah says, no thank you, I'm going back to Moab. And here's the word picture in your scripture that you've got to see. The name Orpah is a word play and it literally means it's a body part. It's the back of her neck. It's the same idea as obstinate and stubborn. In this picture, Orpah, (laughs) Orpah's Naomi. She turns her back to her and shows her her neck as she walks away. In other words, everyone who's confronted with the gospel either at one point has to walk away and say, Jesus, I like all that you stand for, I like all this stuff, but I'm not going to lay down my life and follow you. And that's exactly what Orpah does. She kisses Naomi goodbye and she returns to the land of Moab. What about Ruth? Oh, this is beautiful. Verse 14 says they lifted up their voices again and they wept and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and basically kissed her goodbye but Ruth clung to her. I want you to see in your Bible that Ruth is a picture of a genuine believer who is not turning her back on the invitation. She is clinging to her hope because she knows in Naomi is her hope of a promise. She doesn't even fully know that yet. Naomi represents Christ in this setting. And she is clinging to her as her only hope. She doesn't matter if there's a home. She doesn't matter what, what the future may hold. She's clinging to her because she so loves this woman. That's salvation. You're clinging clinging and you're trusting in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus I don't know what else I may get I don't know what else may come with it I know in you and you alone is my hope salvation is clinging in faith to Jesus Christ and him alone Ruth clings to Naomi and listen to her testimony This is one of the greatest statements in your Bible. Many of you had this in your wedding probably. And you might be disappointed to know this is between two women, not between a man and a woman. But anyway, verse 15. You're going to go back and watch your wedding video and say, what have I done? Verse 15. Then she said, Naomi says to Ruth, behold your sister-in-law Orpah. She's gone back to her people and to her gods. In other words, the weight of Orpah's decision wasn't just, I'm not going with you, Naomi. I'm rejecting you, Naomi, and I'm rejecting your God, and I'm going back to what I know. But Ruth, verse 16 said, do not urge me to leave you or take or turn back from following you. Listen to this. This is a beautiful testimony of a truly born-again believer in Jesus Christ. She says, do not urge me to turn back from following you, for where you go, I'll go. By the way, when a person trusts Jesus Christ, the direction of your life is no longer up to you. You're not in charge. Ruth, in great faith and great trust in Naomi, says, listen, it doesn't matter what the future holds. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. It might be a cave. It might be a hole in the ground. It might be a house. I don't know. Jesus said the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. You have no guarantee of what you may experience in this world when you trust Jesus Christ because this world is not our home. She says where you lodge, I'll lodge. She says your people shall be my people. That's a beautiful testimony. Ruth gets it that to follow Naomi is also to identify with her people, the people of Israel. For a believer and a follower in Jesus Christ, this has such massive implications going into the New Testament and the New Covenant. Ruth is identifying herself not only with Naomi, but with Naomi's people. For us, there is no following Jesus without identifying ourselves with his people, the church. It's throughout Scripture. There's no such thing as, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to do my own thing. When you follow Jesus, you are not only identifying with Jesus, you're identifying with his people, the church. Ruth says, your people shall be my people, and then listen to this, and your God shall be my God. In other words, the influence and the impact of Naomi on the life of Ruth, she has learned, she has seen her witness, she has brought her into her life. And by watching the life of Naomi, Ruth has probably never opened a scroll or opened a Bible in her life, but she came to know the true God of Israel by watching and listening and learning the life of Naomi. And she said, Naomi, your God will be my God. Isn't that beautiful? You do understand that most people come to know Christ by first coming to know a believer. (laughs) By first coming to know someone who has Christ within them. And coming to the point where they will say, "Your God. I want that. I want what you have. Ruth says, Naomi, my God, your God shall be my God. Verse 17, where you die, I will die. I love that. This is not a temporary little decision I'm making. This is not just a mere prayer. I'm praying. I'm surrendering my entire life to death. And there I will be buried unto death. Thus may the Lord do to me. And worse, if anything but death parts you from me. The endurance of faith is even held out here in the testimony of Ruth. So You have this beautiful picture. Naomi says, now, I'm going back to Judah. And Orpah says, The cost is too much for me. And she turns and returns. But Ruth clings to Naomi and walks in faith. And this is her testimony of now of what it really means to be a follower of the one true God buried way back here in the book of Ruth in your Old Testament. Now what happens? Let's try to finish the chapter very quickly. Verse 18, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, Naomi said no more to her. And the two of them went on together, verse 19. So they're going to travel from Moab. They're going to travel up around the Dead Sea. It takes them several days to get there. And they arrive back in the land of Judah. And they show up back in Bethlehem of all places. So they both went, verse 19, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all of the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And scholars disagree necessarily on why this is here. It's been at least ten years since she's been gone. It's been a very rough ten years. Some say that they've been so hard on Naomi. She walks in and they can't even recognize her because it's been so hard on her. Verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. We'll come back to that and talk about what that means in a minute. Naomi's being very honest. The last decade has been very, very, very hard on me. Verse 21, she says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? She says it again, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 20, verse 22, say, Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess. And her daughter-in-law who returned from the land of Moab. Now here's where the chapter ends and we're going to stop right here. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's very important the season of the year that they return. We'll take a closer look at that next week. So here's here's the concluding question for this morning. And that will still set us up a little bit for next week. Pastor Mike, so where's the hope in the book of Ruth? So these two ladies, they come back to Bethlehem, and Naomi's very honest. Things have been hard. It's been been a very hard decade for me. In fact, don't even call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Here's Ruth practically speaking, yes, she's found her hope in the one true God, but now practically speaking, she's returned. They have no idea where they're going to find their sustenance. They have no idea how they're going to live in the land of Israel. Where is the hope that's found in the book of Ruth? I'm going to give you two vital truths and we're going to close with these. I think these are going to be very challenging for you. Number one is this. Based on what we just read out of the book of Ruth, vital truth number one is this. Hope is found in the providence of God is found in the providence of God. Pastor Mike, what does that mean? The providence of God means this, and you see it throughout the book of Ruth. It is God's sustaining care and sovereign directing of all things for His ultimate glory and the good of His people. God's providence is like, we saw it in Acts 27 and 28 with Paul several weeks ago. We see it here in the book of Ruth. Every detail that has transpired that we've just read about comes under the providence of God. It doesn't look like it. Naomi says it sure doesn't feel like it. We don't know how this is going to work out. It's been a crummy decade. But I want you to see something what Naomi says here. Verse 20, go back to that. Naomi says this, she says to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now at first glance, I read this, and maybe you read this, and here's what you conclude, well, this is just a bitter old woman. Well, she's just sick of it. She's had a rough decade. She comes back. She says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter because my life has been so bitter. But I want you to listen to what she says. She says, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. In that is, yes, this. It might be just a bitter old woman. I want you to listen very closely. Here's what this woman is saying She is being honest about her situation. It has been hard. This year has stunk. Maybe some of you can totally resonate with that. It's been hard. I don't understand why all this has happened to me. I've lost my husband. I've lost my children. But she makes a profession here of great faith. She says, But the one who has been ultimately over all of it is the Almighty. Watch this. She refers to God as the Almighty. She doesn't just carelessly pull a name out of the air. She doesn't refer to him as the generic, well, God has done this. She uses a name that was revealed in the Old Testament. It's the name Almighty. Translation is this, El Shaddai. El Shaddai has done this, meaning most powerful God, one mighty to nourish, one mighty to satisfy, one mighty to supply. Naomi, in the midst of all of this, is saying, yes, I don't understand all this. It's not all been good, but I'm trusting that under all of this has happened under the mighty hand of the almighty El Shaddai. And Naomi shows great character in her understanding of God. The last year has been terrible. The last ten years have been terrible. But here's what I'm holding on to. The providence of Almighty God, El Shaddai. I am convinced that He will cause all things to work for my good and for His glory. Even when I don't feel it in the moment. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. There is going to be times, and I pray you know your God like this, that the circumstances are not going to help you. It is not going to be good. You don't know how the next month is going to turn out. You're in a situation that's hopeless, and I pray you have, like Naomi, the character to cry out to your God and cling to El Shaddai. He is almighty, and his providence is over every single thing in your life, child of God. Naomi's able to look back over a decade of pain and say, I don't understand it all, but not a single thing has entered my life that has not been directed and passed through the hand of my El Shaddai. He is faithful. He is good. I trust him even when it doesn't make sense. Watch this. Even when it hurts. That's genuine faith in Almighty God, by the way. And Naomi holds this out. She's clinging to the providence of her God. Now watch this. Naomi has come into her life. She's come into this sustaining care and direction of El Shaddai. Even when things aren't good. Even when things don't make sense. She's demonstrating a deep abiding understanding of the character of her God. Now here's the question. Naomi is saying something about God's character. And she doesn't even realize what she's saying here. Where did Naomi learn the name El Shaddai? Did did she just draw it out of the sky? Where did that name come from? If you know your Bible, you know the first time that name appeared was in Genesis chapter 17 to a man named Abraham. And this name had been passed on generation to generation. Parents taught their kids and parents taught their kids and kids taught their kids and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There was this name of God. It first appears. Now hang with me, this is glorious. In Genesis 17:1, God is speaking to Abram, Abraham, and promising Abraham, from you, Abraham, is going to come a nation. From you, Abraham, is one day is going to be kings. And he says this, Genesis 17:1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. He continues on, 17.6, he says, Before you, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you a nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Genesis 17.6, the name of God is tied directly to God's promise to Abraham to birth a nation, and a Messiah would come. What's this. Naomi has no idea everything she's saying when she calls out the name of El Shaddai. But in the moment, she can't, listen, this is huge. In the moment, she can't trust, the, she doesn't know the future. She doesn't know what's going to happen. The present doesn't seem to be very good. She is clinging to the covenant name of God. She's clinging to the character of God. And look what happens in the future. Stay with me. By the end of the book of Ruth, Naomi is holding a baby in her arms. And the baby is the son of Ruth and the man that we're going to introduce to you next week, a man named Boaz. Boaz turns out to be a redeemer, a man who was directly related to Elimelech, the father. That's a lot of details. We'll give you those next week. But by the end of the book of Ruth, here's Naomi who was very bitter, holding a little baby. And that baby's name is Obed. If you know your history, you know from the end of the book of Ruth, this story turns up again in Matthew in the account of the... Of the Christ child being born. Matthew chapter 1, I'll just read it to you, says this. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. The story doesn't end there. The genealogy goes on. Jacob, verse 16: Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. In other words, Naomi had no idea when she said everything has happened under the control of the Almighty God, that God was planning the future of not just her and Ruth, but the future of the world, and that through Ruth and through Naomi was going to come the Messiah. She had no idea in the moment all that God was doing and why all of that had to happen and why so much pain had to come into her life. But here's what she did. She trusted the promise and the character and the person of God because everything that happened was clearly directed under God's loving hand and care for her good and for his glory. Listen, beloved, hang on to the name El Shaddai. You're going to need it. He is faithful to his promise. And even when the moment doesn't make sense, even when the future seems dark, Naomi had no idea what she was saying, that God was still planning salvation and redemption for the world. Where does hope come from? We trust in the providence of our God. Amen. Secondly, and this one's even quicker, very quick. The other hope that's found in the book of Ruth is this. Hope is found in the picture of our Redeemer in the book of Ruth. Now we're going to spend time on this next week. So again, I hope you take some time this week and study the book of Ruth on your own. But in chapter 2, you're going to be introduced to a fellow named Boaz. Ruth is gleaning in the barley field, and a man named Ro- Boaz, who is wealthy, he is kind, he's a Jew, he's an unmarried landowner, and he's a relative of Elimelech who had died earlier. He has a legal right to redeem Ruth, and that's exactly what happens. Here's this Jewish, wealthy, kind man with unlimited resources who sees this Gentile gleaning in his field, here's the question, how can a cursed, hopeless Gentile find hope? Who are the cursed, hopeless Gentiles? How can we find hope and where do we find it in the book of Ruth? Because Boaz is a picture of another to come. Boaz is a picture of your Redeemer and your kinsman Redeemer. Here's the glorious picture of Ruth. Ready? Where did this hopeless, cursed Gentile find hope? Watch. She found it in her Redeemer in Bethlehem. Isn't that awesome! This is one book written by one God and one author from Genesis to Revelation and all of it points to your Redeemer and my Redeemer born in Bethlehem. Joy to the world. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And Ephesians chapter 6 ends and I'll end with this and it says, speaking to us as believers, remember that you were at one time separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, your kinsman redeemer, your redeemer, you were formerly far off and now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ there is hope for the hopeless. Amen. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Would you bow your head with me this morning? We're going to continue to worship this great Savior. And my prayer is this morning, if you don't know the hope that is found in Jesus, you, like Ruth, cling in faith to Jesus Christ. He alone takes away the sin of the world if you are a follower of Christ and we enter into this Christmas season, I pray that you are dazzled by the grace that you have received and nothing will keep you and hold you back from holding out the hope that is found in Jesus to your friends and your neighbors and those where we live, work, and play. Let's make Jesus known during the Christmas season. Father, we need you. Lord, we love you. God, I thank you for the story of God's word and your scripture that is one story from the beginning of the end. And we thank you and we praise you for Jesus. We thank you for our redeemer in whom we have hope. Send us out now to make that hope known. For Christ's sake, amen. Will you stand? Let's sing as our team leads us.